This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Welcome to Emmaus, everyone. I hope everybody's staying warm. (laughs) There are no announcements today. So today's reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 40, which is the entire chapter, which is exciting. Okay. All right. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who is by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. 
This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Becca, for the... Marathon scripture reading, which could easily become three or four sermons in and of itself. I, uh, I don't know if we want to be here for the next few hours going over every single little detail of chapter seven. And if you're thinking, Aaron texted out that this was about making decisions and you're wondering, how in the world does chapter 7 have anything to do with making decisions? Hopefully, uh, by the end of the sermon, you'll, you'll have an answer to that, or even by the beginning of the sermon. Where, um, when you look at a, a, a passage that that's, the, that's that long, there's a, there's a whole lot of little details in each one of those in each one of those sections that we could get caught up in, um, which would be good to be caught up in. Sometimes we can move a little slower, we pick apart every little sentence. We talk about each little word. Um, but I thought it would be good. Um, I thought it would be good to do this whole chapter because I believe that there's a, a common theme that Paul is sort of bringing us to. I believe that there's a sort of a, a conclusion in this letter within these first couple of chapters that he's heading us towards. And he says that conclusion uh, at the end of chapter 11. And I'll, and I'll turn there in a second. But but at first, I want to just talk about what we've been talking about a little bit in Corinthians. We're trying to understand the, the, the flow of the letter. We're trying to understand this long chapter that's got a, a handful of, of various things that I believe are connected together. But we've been, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about sin. The last couple of weeks have been a little bit on the weighty side. We talked about the corruption of sin. We talked about how... Uh, it's even some sin is so corruptive that there's consequences for those things right away. And some sin is, is less so, 
but over time can actually, can actually wear on us and can keep us from, from enjoying and from appreciating and from understanding the beauty of the gospel. So we've been talking about, about sin. We talked about the deceitfulness of sin and the fact that our, our hearts are deceitful above all else, which is kind of a dramatic statement by itself. But we, we talked about how we can be deceived by those things and in, in ways that the, when we're taught by the Spirit, we can sort of see through the lies of our sin so that we can embrace and we can enjoy and we can rest in the, the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. And what Paul is doing is, is as he deals with these sin issues, he's hinted at it before. He said, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And I said that what, what is the most profitable thing we could do as, 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 as people made in the image of God? And the point that I made was that the most profitable thing we can do as people made in the image of God is to do all things for God's glory. Amen. And this is actually the conclusion that Paul makes in this large section where he's talking about how to do this. He's dealt with sin. Now, now he's actually talking about how we can do things for the glory of God. And at the end of chapter 10, he says in verse 31, uh, after Ben's section next week on food, he sort of concludes this large section in Corinthians with saying, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, let's start with the most simple basic things. Whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And it sounds, it's like one of those, you know, I feel like it's like one of those verses that we put in a picture frame and like put on our shelf or something. But what does it mean to do everything to the glory of God? How many of you, got dressed this morning and thought more about God's glory than the temperature outside. And I said, negative, feels like negative 24 when I woke up this morning. I was like, that is really cold. How, how many of us had breakfast this morning and said, man, I wanna do this with my heart and mind fixed on the glory and wonder of my creator. And we don't really do that. And I think we should do more of that. And I think Paul is telling us we should do more of that. And he, and he talks about, we'll talk a little bit about why, but what does it mean to do that? What does it mean to fix our heart and our mind on the glory of God? And there, there, in the commentary I'm reading, there was a, a kind of a big section explaining that verse. And I, I don't wanna get too far ahead, but there was one sentence that I really liked that was at the very beginning of the explanation of what it means to do everything to the glory of God. He said, let ourselves be forgotten and let your eye be fixed on God. Let ourselves be forgotten and let your eye be fixed on God. And he, and he went on to explain more of that, but he was summarizing what it means to do everything in the glory of God. And he said, let, let ourselves be forgotten and let your eye be fixed on God. And I think about that and it's like, what else would we want to fix our eye on? I mean, yes, lots of things because we're broken, fallen creatures. But if we think for a second about all the things we have in the gospel, about who we are in Christ, about the love and affection that we have from the Father, about that he's, the idea that he's sovereignly working all things out for our good, about the reality that fullness of joy is found in communion with our heavenly Father, what else would we want to fix our eye on? And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thought. It's a thought that I think warms my affections as I think about where God is calling me to fix my, my attention. He's calling me to fix my attention on him. 
He's calling me to fix my attention on, on the most wonderful thing I could ever fix my attention on, the beauty and the glory of God. Yes, and it, it's one of those things that it, even if we begin to like grasp and wrestle with it, it still doesn't really answer the question, how do I do that? How do I fix my eye on God and less on myself when I'm getting dressed in the morning? And, and more complicated than that, we have to make all these decisions in our life. Where do I live? What's the career that I should pursue? Should I get married? Should I date? How is this presentation gonna be built at work? Do I prioritize these emails? There's so many decisions we make every day that aren't really a matter of, of right and wrong, aren't really a matter of like sinful or not sinful. And there's a sense that we kind of wish that they were. Because if it was just sin, it'd be easy to say, well, I don't have to, there's no stress about making this decision, it's just sinful. I think we kind of have this, we sort of like want things to be that simple a little bit. Um, I, even in verse one in Corinthians, that's sort of where, the, where this comes from. Obviously, Corinthians is having struggles with sexual things. We've, we've, I feel like we've talked enough about that uh, over the last couple of weeks. So it makes sense to me in verse one where they say, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. They're almost like, you know what? No sex. Let's just, let's just make this simple rule so that no matter what, we just, we just cut that off and that makes all of our decisions a lot easier. And there's this impulse that we have when we, if we wanna do everything for the glory of God, if we wanna fix our eye on him and think less of ourselves, a lot of times it's just simpler to have these like simple rules that aren't in scripture, that are, that are not good or bad, but we want these simple rules so that we can pursue the glory and the beauty of Christ. And it reminded me of my high school where the simple rule of the way to glorify God when you got dressed in the morning is the skirt could only go to here if you were a girl. <laughs> Never mind everything else going on, but if you were to follow that simple rule, then what you were dressing and how you were thinking about it was to glorify God. And I don't know if they thought that deeply about it. But we, we always want these little simple rules. And when we make decisions as Christians about how we pursue the glory and the wonder and the beauty of God, life is a little more complicated than that, which is a, a little obvious. So I think what Paul is doing, and we're not gonna be able to go through every little detail and, and every little nuance in these 40 verses. We got 39 more to go. We're not gonna be able to go through every little detail, but I think what Paul is doing in a big way, he goes through a handful of three things to sort of give us some questions that we can ask ourselves to say, am I doing this for the glory of God? Is my eye fixed on the Lord or is it more about myself? And I think we're gonna see as we walk through this passage, as we take these kind of big chunks at a time, we're gonna look at three questions. We're gonna look at three questions and say, am I doing this for the glory of God? And, and I'll repeat these so you don't have to scramble to write them down if you're trying to write them down. Um, we're gonna say, does it lead me to sin? Maybe it's not sin, but does it lead me to sin? Another thing we're gonna ask is, does it come from a place of being, dis does it come from a place of not having contentment? Am I dissatisfied? 
Does it come from a place of being dissatisfied? Am I trying to make a decision about my life? Am I trying to do something because I'm not satisfied? It's another question we can ask if we're doing something for the glory of God, if we're, if we're fixing our eye on the glory of God. And then the final question that I think Paul leads us to ask in this section is does it divide my attention from the Lord? Does it divide my attention from the Lord? Because if I really believe that all the beauty, all the wonder, all the satisfaction that I could ever desire is ultimately found in God, why would I divide my attention from that? And these aren't all of the questions. I think in a lot of ways, Ben's section is gonna ask next week when we talk about food, does it build up my brother? And we're not gonna get to that this morning. I think 40 verses is enough. Um, but we are gonna ask, those, we're gonna ask those three questions and kind of just see as we walk through this passage, just this giant passage on, on marriage, on divorce, on slavery, on where I grew up culturally, all these different things. We're gonna just ask these three questions and, and kind of see, is this something I'm doing because my heart and my mind is fixed on the beauty and the glory of the Lord? Or is this something I'm doing because I'm fixed on myself? So let's pray uh, and then we'll jump in and kind of work our way through this. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that your spirit intercedes on our behalf. I thank you that as we're taught by your spirit, even when you reveal to us that everything we need, everything we want, everything we desire is found in you, even as we, even as we come and worship this morning where our attention is divided. Um, Lord, I pray that you would work in a supernatural way to help us fix our minds and our hearts on you, that we would live in a way that has your glory in view 24-7. Lord, I pray that you would give us peace. I pray that you would remind us that we stand in the perfect life of Christ, that, that we're united to, to your son who, who lived a life, every waking moment of his life, fixing his, his heart and his mind on, on his heavenly father and not on himself. Well, that's a wonder to consider. I thank you that that's how you treat us. I thank you that that's what you've credited us with. And I thank you that your spirit unites us to Christ so that as we make decisions about our week, as we make decisions about our day, as we make decisions about our life, we stand in your son. And you've given us the ability to fix our eyes and our hearts and our minds on who you are, Lord. So help us as we look at this passage, help us consider these things as we, as we go about our life. Uh, in your name I pray, amen. All right, so let's just start with this section. Right after they ask this question, or right after they make this statement, they're like, you know what, sex is never good. And Paul's like, hold on, life is more complicated than that. And, and he re let's read the next few, uh, few verses, starting in verse two. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, the husband should give to the wife her rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Uh, just stop for a second there, kind of a side note. The wife having authority over the husband in the first century in this context would have been a little bit controversial. And I just kind of want to stand by the fact that yes, the Bible talks about different roles for men and women, but in the, in the context of marriage, uh, this is, this is it, two equals. 
Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no priority over who has rights over who. There's actually equality in marriage, and this is something that comes up a handful of times in this passage. So that's just kind of a side note. Um, let's keep going. It says, do not deprive one another. And yep, that's what you think it means. Uh, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. By agreement, again, there's equality there. That you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And he kind of bookends that section with, but because of the temptation to sexual morality, and then ends with, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And Paul is just making the point. They make this obvious statement that says sex is not good. Paul's making the point, hold up, let's think about this. God has designed an environment where it's a wonderful thing. And if you're gonna make the black and white statement that it's not good, that's not in scripture, if you're gonna make this black and white statement, that could actually lead you to more sin. He brings this up. That could actually lead you to more sin. And it's pretty straightforward. There are circumstances or there are things that are good. There are things that the Bible isn't saying is sin or is not sin that may not be bad in and of themselves. Even, even being single and withholding from sexual relations is not necessarily a sinful thing. But he's saying, if that leads you to sin, if you're struggling with that and you can change something about that, then you should, you should, you should do what you can to change that. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. He's saying if, if there's something good that you, that you are withholding from and it's actually leading you to more sin, you shouldn't do that. So the, the first thing I think we should consider when we're talking about is this for the glory of God is not necessarily is this thing sin or is this thing not sin, but does this something that leads me to sin? Is this something that leads me to sin? And it, it's, it's easy for me to think of um, for myself personally, it's easy for me to think of something as silly as like all-you-can-eat buffets. If I'm trying to have self-control, <laughs> if I'm trying to have self-control with my relationship with food, all you can, CeCe's pizza is not sinful. <laughs> I was trying to think of that other one in, uh, where it's like the tapas and you pay for it, you just get whatever you want for the whole time. I don't remember. Tamayo, yeah, Tamayo, yeah. CeCe's is also awesome. Tamayo is not sin, it's delicious. <laughs> But if I'm struggling with my relationship with food, going there would potentially lead me to sin. And I don't think, there's nothing wrong with feasting. There's feasting in the Bible, but that's different than having a bad relationship with food and, and struggling to have self-control in that regard. There's, so so I, have to, I can't just say, well, is tamayo good or bad? Is to, no, I have to also consider, is this something that leads me to sin? And maybe one that hits a little more closer to home, social media. Is there anything wrong with social media? No. Does it lead me to covet sometimes things I don't have? Maybe. Does it lead me to lead me, tempt me to prop myself up and to boast about things so that everyone knows what I am doing or, or what I have in a way that's not, that's dishonoring to the Lord? Does it lead me to envy other situations? Do, so nothing's wrong with social media. Does reading posts about people that I love cause me to love them less? If we're doing everything for the glory of God, if we're trying to fix our hearts and our minds and the beauty of our King and the relationship we have with God, yeah, something may not be sinful, but we have to ask ourselves, does it lead us to sin? 
And Paul knows that these are different situations for everybody. This isn't, he's not, he's, he's pushing back against this black and white. This is how it is. This is how it not is. That's what we have scripture for. It tells us what sin is. But there's so many aspects of our lives that are just, that just aren't that black and white. And Paul says in verse six and seven, he's kind of reminding us that this is different for everyone. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another kind. Paul is just saying, look, I don't particularly struggle. I don't burn with passion. I'm not, I'm not in a position where I should be pursuing marriage right now. And, and he's like, in a sense, I kind of wish everybody was where I'm at. And he's gonna go on to kind of talk to us about why. But, he, but the, he's, he's recognizing this fact that in all of these situations, it may not tempt someone to sin to go to Tamayo. <laughs> You know, it may not tempt someone to sin to enjoy the things that they get to see on social media and to share things with others. Everyone is kind of in a different place and this is what Paul is saying. It's interesting that he says that we're all gifted. Each one has his own gift from God. He's saying, if this is not something that's causing you to sin, this is actually a gift given to you by God. God has particularly equipped you for whatever situation that you're in so that you could honor and glorify him with your life. And that's gonna look different for each one of us. He's just making the point that, that it's some, if something leads you to sin, it may not lead someone else to sin. If, it's something doesn't, if you're led to sin, it may, not, it may not be a struggle that somebody else has. And he goes on to kind of give us a handful of examples, just sort of applying this situation to, to marriage and giving us some examples. And, and this is kind of one of those passages where, it's easy to get caught up in, and I think again, appropriately as we're considering these things, there's a lot that's said about marriage, about divorce, about what that looks like. And we're not gonna go into every single little, little detail here, but I wanna get the gist of what he's saying because he brings up two situations. He talks about the unmarried and he talks about the married and then he talks about some of the difficulties that can incur in the situation of being married. So let's look at the, he says in the next verse, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And he's just making a particular application again to what he's already said. He's like, look, if this is a situation that you're in that leads you to sin, it's better that you try to get married. If you can change something about your circumstances that makes it less likely for you to fall into sin, do it. Change those circumstances. That's something that you should pursue. And he goes on to the next section and and kind of the flip side of this, he says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And he's saying, this isn't even me, my statement. He's saying, this is God, our savior spoke this himself. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. What he's saying is, if you're in a situation, if you're in a situation that's, that you cannot change your circumstances, God is actually never gonna ask you to sin in order to deal with your sin. If you're in a situation where, where it's difficult and you're struggling, or you're in a situation where you, you may be wrestling with sin, he's saying divorce is, is a very clear, you know, and, I, and there are, there are exceptions to this. There are, there are 
weighty and difficult situations here, and he's gonna talk about one of the most difficult ones in the next couple of verses. But he's saying if you're in a situation where it's clear, where it's clear that it would be sin to actually change your circumstances, if you're in a situation where it's clear that it would be sin to change your circumstances, then you shouldn't. You shouldn't change your circumstances. And he, and he says this because he's actually, he's actually reminding us that this is about fixing our eyes, fixing our heart on the beauty and the glory of God. And he just spent a handful of chapters talking to us about sin is corrupting, about how sin is deceitful. And so he's saying, if you're in a circumstance, even if it's a difficult circumstance, even if it's causing you to stumble or you're struggling with it, and, and you think that the way out of that circumstance is, is sinful, then you should, you should stay in that circumstance. And you should stay in that circumstance because you shouldn't underestimate what God is doing in that situation. And he goes on to sort of explain this. He says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Again, this sort of idea of equality here. No one has authority to break what God has put together. It says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> and there's, there's some discussion on this and there's a handful of different views, but I think the safest way is to just to consider Paul's background in the Old Testament. Israel was not called to marry outside of Israel. That was actually sinful of them. They weren't supposed to marry the, the foreign wives is usually the way it's described in the Old Testament. But we know that this happened. We know that this happened. And, and what, what happened is, is when they married outside of the community, whoever they married then was considered as part of that community. And the children of, of that even though that was an inappropriate marriage as the, as the Israelites married outside of their, their community, the children of that community were still considered Israelites, were still considered Jews. And the one that I thought of that kind of came to mind was Rahab. Rahab was not a Jew. Jesus came from Rahab. There, there was a sense, even within the Israelite culture, is if, if you married outside and it wasn't appropriate, the children could still participate as Jews in the sacrificial system. They could still participate in those things. So he's just making this application. I think the easiest way to understand this is that even if you're in this situation, even if you're in a really tough situation, where it believe, and if for Paul, this is about the most difficult of a situation as you could be in. This is a, this is a spiritual enemy, in a sense, a spiritual enemy United to one flesh with someone who's set apart for holy service to the Lord. That's a tough situation. That was like the first year and a half of my marriage. That was, that was painful. There, there's a lot of tears shed. There's a lot of conflict in that. That's difficult. And he says, look, if you're in a difficult situation where changing the circumstances would actually be adding on to the sin, by divorcing, if you're in a difficult situation like this, don't underestimate what God is able to do. 
See, don't underestimate what God is able to do. And he goes on to say, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, but God has called you to peace. He's saying, look, as a believer, as someone who's fixing their eyes on the glory and the beauty of your creator and trusting him with your life, if you're in a situation that's really difficult in, in, in the context of marriage that leads to that person separating, leaving, you're, you're not enslaved. You're, you're not, that is not, that is between them and the Lord. That's not, that's not something you need to be held accountable for. But as a believer, you're called to peace. You're called to go after in every way possible reconciliation. You're, you're called to be someone who is so entrenched in and so focused on the glory and the beauty of God in that situation, you're doing everything you can to bring peace. And he says that and he, and he encourages them and says, for how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband, whether you save your wife? Saying if you're in a difficult situation and you're tempted to sin in order to remove yourself from that difficult situation, you're underestimating what God can do. You're underestimating what God can do. And I was thinking about sort of an application of this outside of the, the covenant of marriage. This is Paul sort of addressing this specific circumstance. And he's telling us it shouldn't just be about sin or not sin. It should be about whether it leads us to sin. And I was thinking about when we moved back to Omaha, I had a really, or moved back to Denver. I had a really nice job in Omaha that I enjoyed. Uh, I had a lot of free time. I had made some major changes in, in God's um, Providence sort of worked it out so I could be more involved with my church. It was wonderful. I was uh, doing some a leadership training thing. Uh, we were leading a small group at the time. Uh, I got a chance to teach Sunday school. There's a handful of things I got to be involved in because of some work changes um, at my job in Omaha. And when we were moving back, we felt very convicted. We felt very convicted that we should be in Denver uh, in large part because Bridget's parents, uh, Bridget's the only child. So we wanted to be there essentially to serve and consider them. Jesus says, if you don't uh, take care of your parents as he's talking to the Pharisees and you're worse than a Gentile. And so th that verse like weighed on us and there was a lot of factors and things to consider, but we thought we, we love our church. We love our job. We love everything that we're doing, but I feel like it would be sin for us to not consider our parents and, and for that to not weigh heavily on us. And again, there were some other kind of factors involved in there. There's a big part of it. But I wanted, we spent a good year before we found Emmaus and we were thankful for Emmaus. But then when we were realizing we would move, we're like, well, I, wanted, I want a good job when we get to Denver. <laughs> like I, I've, I've had a job that's like sucked all the time and energy out of me. I don't, I don't want a job that's, that's going back to 50, 60 hours a week. And it was, we wrestled with that for a while. And we just decided that, you know what? We think it's the right thing to move back. And even though it's not ideal, we're gonna take it, we're gonna let, I'll take a job that's, that's kind of lame compared to what we did before. So I, so I got a job doing asset protection for Walmart which I never thought I would do. I had no idea what I was doing. I, it was just like, well, I don't have to work on Sunday. So the bar for like the schedule was, was better. So if I don't have to work on Sunday, I can work 60 hours a week. We can make this work. We can do this. It'll be great. And I was like, and I, I want to say after a year, year and a half of doing that, I looked at Bridget and I was like, what am I doing here? Like, what, what is the, like, wh this is not something I'm pursuing I have no idea how God is working. I don't see any opportunities to change my circumstance. I'm working a ton of hours. It's making it difficult for us. It's making it difficult to be involved in the church. And I just, 
what, what am I, why I underestimated what God was doing. And there was a really odd chance for me to get trained within the, within the kind of state area to do uh, interrogations. Another thing that I had no desire was not, I don't know, this was not on my radar for things. So I ended up being one of the dudes that goes and interrogates internal investigations. Uh, we build a case, we do an interrogation, and we handle sort of all the situations that, that uh, there's internal theft. And, 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 we, and we deal with that legally, we deal with that with the police, we deal with sometimes you have to go to court, and there's all sorts of things wrapped up in this. And I remember it was, it was during the Christmas time and I've learned some of this and I've done a handful of interrogations. It's super intense and it's like nerve wracking. And I was like, Bridget, why am I doing this? Like, what is God doing in my life? Like, what is the point of all of this? And it was just one of those times where I was just, didn't see an out and I didn't know what God was doing. And I and honestly underestimated what he was doing. And, and not only, I would say three months later, as I'm sort of be, beginning to my, my, my role as an elder, Cole finds out, that one of our deacons has been stealing from our church for like six years. And in God's providence, as an elder team, we were so much more equipped to deal with that situation. I was so much more familiar with dealing with something like that because that was literally my job. And I didn't even have that job for that much longer after that. I was like, God had been working in, in, in a way that I just didn't understand that I thought was miserable, that was mainly just suffering. And all the while I'd underestimated what he was doing in my life. He was carefully crafting and pruning me in a way that I couldn't even see so that I could serve the community in a way that I could never have imagined. Amen. And it was, it's just, God is always doing that. And sometimes we're in tough situations where we want them to change and it's okay that we want them to change, but there's no obvious godly way out of that circumstance. And if there's no obvious godly way out of that circumstance, sometimes we're underestimating what God is doing. God is always working for you because you're united to him and he loves you. And if he's called you to a circumstance that's difficult and there's no godly way out of it and it's leading you to sin, don't underestimate what God is able to do in that situation. So that's kind of the one question. If we're doing everything for the glory of God, if we have our heart and our mind fixed on the beauty and the wonder of our savior, we can ask, and we can ask ourselves, we can take time and ask ourselves, does this thing that I'm pursuing, does this decision that I'm gonna make, does it lead me to sin? It may not be sin, but does it lead me to sin? Or is the situation that I'm in now, does it lead me to sin? And if there's not a godly way out of it, how am I underestimating what God is doing? How can I trust him and what he's doing? So Paul goes on in this next section and kind of helps us out. If we're gonna glorify, if we're gonna, if we're gonna have our minds and our hearts fixed on the glory of God, we should ask ourselves, is it coming from a place of dissatisfaction? If I wanna change something, if I wanna make a decision if I wanna do something that I'm not sure if it's for the glory of God, I can ask myself, is it coming from a place of dissatisfaction? And it might be hard for the uh, slide person to keep up because I'm gonna jump around a little bit, but if you have your Bible open, it's a little easier. Yeah, challenge accepted back there. We're gonna look at verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24 real quick. And then we'll kind of go back. He says in verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. 
Each one should remain in the condition in which he is called. In verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. He it says it three times sort of in the same section. He's saying, look, wherever you are, wherever you are in your life, this was not an accident. However God orchestrated who you are, when he called you, when he united you to his son, when he brought you into the family, that wasn't an accident. God actually has a purpose for you in every single situation. And he and kind of ends that last one. It says, let him there remain with God. He's showing us that, that regardless of what situation we're in, regardless of uh, our, our upbringing or, or, or everything that we brought to the table when we were converted, regardless of our socioeconomic status, no matter what, who we are or what we're doing, we have a purpose to glorify and honor God and we can find fulfillment in who we are in, in our union with Jesus Christ. And this is basically what he says in the two examples. In verse 18, he says, was, any time, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to move, remove the marks of circumcision. I don't know how you do that. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And circumcision isn't, it isn't just about this idea of circumcision. For, for the Jewish culture, circumcision is like the, the uh, I think it's called a synecdote. It's like one thing that sort of represents all the things. Okay, I got grammar people nodding their head there. <laughs> so, but it, it's this idea, if you were a Jew, if we were in a church in the first century, I would know if Ben was a Jew. He would dress differently. He would eat differently. He would have different culture. He would, have, he would do things very differently than if, if, if I had another member who was a Gentile. It would look, it would look very different. And, and a lot of that is just sort of how you were brought up, the culture that you were in, the, the traditions that you have. And, and for, for Paul, all those cultures and traditions and the things that they did as a Jew was something that came from the Old Testament. You, you couldn't have like a sort of a better culture or upbringing or anything. This was something that he praises God in, in Romans about the, the benefit of the Jews who had the very oracles of God. So he's saying, look, when God called you, he knew that you did not have the same cultural experiences. You did not have the same education. You did not have the same upbringing as those people around you. There's, there's actually nothing there's actually nothing that can take away from what God, the purpose that God has called you to do, regardless of, of your upbringing or regardless of where you're at. And he says that in verse 19. He says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. The, your, your cultural upbringing, your education, the traditions that you participate in, who you are and what has shaped you, those things ultimately don't matter. He says, but keeping the commandments of God. And you can kind of emphasize that. I don't know how to make that into a verb. Um, but we say we are transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. There is not a culture, there is not an upbringing that hinders God from transforming you more and more into the image of Christ. It's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. The, the, the important thing for us as we're, as we're shaped and molded in the image of Christ is not where we came from or who we are, but what we're able to do for the Lord as our, our purpose is to, to fix our hearts and our minds on his glory. And whether that's because 
we look different than other people, whether that's because we look the same as everybody else. There's nothing that can actually hinder God from transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And if you're not satisfied with how God has brought you to the place that you are, it's just gonna take away from the simplicity that we're called to look and be transformed into the image of Christ. And in his second example, he talks about sort of your socioeconomic status. He says, were you a slave when called? Verse 31 or 21. Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave, as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And what he's saying is, and I, you know, we, and, and yes, in the first century, even in, in Israel's history, there were some very despicable things involved in slavery. There was some conquering and, and pulling people in, um, enslaving women and children in sort of a, a, a disgusting way. But one thing we tend to forget about slavery in the ancient world is, is when, when they lost their job, um, they couldn't just get a stimulus check. When they, when they, and you know, that's a recent thing. When they were between jobs, they couldn't just charge up their Discover card as much as they wanted. There was no like credit system. So if you were, you were working and that was a particularly tough year and, there were, and, and you, were, you were indebted or you weren't able to actually survive or you weren't able to have food to survive, you would enslave yourself. It'd be a way for you to, to say, hey, your business is not doing half bad over here. And a lot of times it was, it was, it was sort of family oriented um, just because of the locality of where people are. But you would, you would indebt yourself to someone so you could survive. So Paul's talking about the lowest of the low on the socioeconomic status. He's like, look, if you can free yourself of that debt, if you can avail your freedom, do that. We shouldn't indebt ourselves to men because we've been bought with a price. We've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. But he's saying no matter where you are, no matter what situation you're in, your worth and your glory and who you are is wrapped up in who you are in the Lord. You could be the most wealthy believer you could be the, the, the lowest of the low, but, but those things aren't ultimately what define you. Those things aren't ultimately what satisfies you. Those things aren't ultimately determine who you are and the love that God has for you. It's our union with Christ that makes us who we are. And he's saying, if you're not satisfied with where you're at in life, if you're not satisfied with your upbringing or sort of the, the cultural things that you have in your life, if, if this is coming from a place of dissatisfaction, then you're missing out. You don't have your mind, you don't have your heart fixed on the beauty and the wonder and the glory of God. Because if that were the case, you would be satisfied. And so we can reflect on that. We can say, look, am I doing something for the glory of God or am I doing it for myself? We should stop and say, is this coming from a place of dissatisfaction? Do I think where God has me is not, not where he should have me? Do I think who I am and how I value myself is based on changing my circumstances? Or do I see that as who I am in Christ? That, that nothing can change that. I think that's a really freeing element of the gospel. This is a difficult one because we so easily evaluate ourselves based on what we've accomplished or who we are or what our job is or our career. But think about how, how freeing that is. 
None of those things can stop you from glorifying and honoring him as he transforms you into the image of Christ. None of those things can take away from who you are in the Lord. And the last question he kind of brings up in this section, we talked about maybe it leads me to sin. We talked about if it's coming from a place of contentment. And the last question is, does it distract me from the Lord? Does it divide my attention? And I think about that in light of even the quote that we said at the beginning. It said, let ourselves be forgotten and let our eye be fixed on God. If we really believe that God is where fullness of joy is found, then if something divides our attention from something so wonderful, why would we do it? Why would we decide to divide our attention from the Lord? Look, look at verse 25. It says, now concerning the betrothed, uh, kind of side note, you gotta probably have a little, little note. Betrothed uh, is actually the Greek word for virgin there. And in these ancient cultures, virgin was very much a word that was used for someone who was betrothed. So it's appropriate use of that word. Uh, it was also a word that was used for like a virgin daughter. So as a, as a father, you could have a, a virgin who is, who is your daughter. That's translated that way in the Old Testament quite a bit. It talks about the virgin daughters of Jerusalem. It comes from, the, from a similar word. So it's gonna make, that's gonna be helpful because our ESV Bibles use the word betrothed the whole way through. And it gets a little confusing because in the last section, it's like, well, maybe you should just be engaged for forever. Um, and that's not, not exactly where, uh, the, where it's going. And I think the ESV kind of failed at that point. And there's, there's some debate about that, but a, a good practice and um, something I encourage people to do is if you're looking at a passage and you're like, man, this doesn't make any sense. It's a really good practice to just pull up an app on your phone and say, what does another version of the Bible say? 99 times out of 100, you do that, you're gonna be like, well, it says the same thing. It's confusing. Um, but occasionally it says something different because there's just some, there's some thought around how that particular Greek phrase or Hebrew phrase could be translated. So it's just a good practice if you're trying to understand something in scripture sometimes to so just look at other versions and it helps shed some light on those things. But let's, um, we're gonna cruise through some of these last sections. So uh, if, you have, if you do have any questions about some of the specifics, I'm always happy to talk about this, but trying to get the main theme as we work through this. Look at verse 25. He says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. He's just saying, look, the, the world is a little bit crazy right now. Paul's saying it's, it's tumultuous is another way to talk about that. Maybe it's better to just stay as you are. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I wanna spare you that. And I think the, the first thought is, well, what do you mean by worldly troubles, Paul? Which is thankful in verse 29, he says, this is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though who were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. The present form of this world is passing away. That's sort of a, a helpful phrase that makes sense of everything else he's saying. He's like, look, Marriage is a wonderful thing. 
We could, we could compare some of the things he's saying here to what he's saying in Ephesians. There's a wonderful beauty in pointing us to what, what the gospel is doing as Christ unites himself to his church in, the, in marriage. But he's saying even marriage, even something as wonderful as marriage is ultimately not eternal. Even something as wonderful as marriage is ultimately not eternal. So he tells us, we should live as though these things are not lasting. We should, we should live as one who deals in the world, although they have no dealings in the world. We should live as one who's mourning, but as though we're not mourning, as rejoicing as though we're not rejoicing. Because all the things that we, we see, all the things that we're excited about, all the things that are in front of us, these are not the eternal things. These are not the things that will last for forever. So if we're gonna focus our attention somewhere, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna live in these tumultuous times where we need to focus our attention on anything, it should be on something that's eternal. It should be on the wonder and the beauty of our creator. It should be on, on the gospel and the glory of God so we can praise him for what he's doing in us and what he's doing in others. And that's something we'll praise him for for eternity. The, the joy and the experience we have with the fellowship with our father is something that's gonna last for forever. Amen. And he's saying, if you're gonna say, if you're gonna make a decision in your life and you're gonna think about how this affects you, you should ask yourself, does it, does it distract you from the eternal heavenly father? Does it, is it something that's gonna make you, is it something even positively that's gonna enable you to be more focused and more considerate of eternal things? Or is it gonna divide your attention? And this is what he goes on to say. He kind of makes this point. Verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. He says, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. He says, look, I'm not saying this is black and white. I'm not saying it's wrong to get married. It's wonderful to get married. He says, but I'm telling you these things to promote good order and to secure your undivided attention to the Lord, your undivided devotion to the Lord. Undivided devotion. And it's, it's, it's sort of like the logical end to what we say. If we say we want to be impressed by the beauty of the gospel, if we want to say, uh, we're going to sing a song Jesus is better, make my heart believe. We're making a statement that no matter what it is, Jesus is better. If we really believe that and we're making decisions about our lives, why would we make decisions that would pull us away from our focus and our attention and our undivided attention on our Lord? If that's really what's better. Why not as we consider our lives as we make decisions, as we think about our week, how do we say, Lord, I have responsibilities that you've called me to. I have situations that I need to be in. We have jobs. We should provide for our families. This is something that honors and glorifies the Lord. We can be thankful for that. But as I consider my week, as I consider my day, how can I have less divided attention? How can I be more focused on who you are in the beauty of your gospel? We should ask these questions. If we're trying to figure out what it means to do, whether we eat or drink all to, the be all to the glory of the Lord, 
How often do we stop and say, Lord, how can I be less divided and more focused on who you are this week? I don't know about you, but when I worked through this chapter this week, my head was swirling a little bit. And I'm thinking to myself, I have a whole lot of other lenses by which to make decisions and to think about what I do in the next hour and what I do in the next five years. And it was like a little bit overwhelming. I was like, well, how do I, how do I think through if this is gonna cause me to sin or not? How, what if this is gonna divide my attention? What if it's not gonna divide my attention? And I, and I got kind of, maybe that's like the one in me, but I got kind of swirly about all the different ways and possible things so that I could do the exact right situation and, and everything that I'm doing. And, and I was struggling with this and I, and I kind of had this, I kind of had this uh, moment of joy. I kind of had this experience where I was like, you know what? <laughs> the beauty of the gospel is that if it's not sin, it's fine. The beauty of the gospel is at the end of the day, I'm connected to Christ and God is gonna work with the not perfect thing that I choose to make me more and more into the image of Christ. The beauty of the gospel is that I don't actually know what the best thing to do every day is to, to fix my heart and mind on the beauty and the glory of Christ. I'm gonna try, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna plead with the spirit to give me a lens by which I can make these decisions, but I don't have to even stress about whether I made the perfect decision or not. Because I'm united to Christ, he's gonna use all of the decisions I make and it's fine. And I think that's what Paul is saying at the last section in verse 36. And this is where things get a little confusing with the betrothed. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, another translation that is his virgin daughter, and you can look at like the New King James or something and it sort of works that through. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his, if her, his or her passions are strong and it has to be, let, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It's not sin. He's like, look, I just told you what I think is the better route, but look, it's not sin, it's okay. He's, he's sort of encouraging us that in, in a sense, as we, even as we wrestle with these things, it's okay. It's not sin. God is gonna use these things. He says, but on the flip side, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep his virgin daughter, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed, he who sends them in marriage does well, and he refrains from sending her in marriage will do even better. He says, it's fine. They will, even the situation that is not necessarily the most perfect situation will do well. It is not sin. And he reminds us of the consequences of, of the choices that we make even in the last couple of verses. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. As we consider decisions in our life, as we really think about how can I keep my heart and my mind fixed on the glory and the beauty and the wonder of my God? Life is complicated. If we're taught by the spirit, we actually have some lenses in which we can, we can consider these things. I should consider if something leads me to sin. I should consider if something distracts me from the Lord. I should consider these things. But at the end of the day, we don't rest on how well we make these decisions. 
At the end of the day, the beauty of the gospel is that it's not sin. And it might be better to go one route. It might be better to go this route. But God is gonna use those circumstances to mold us and to shape us more and more into the image of Christ. And thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a spirit that not only gives us wisdom as we make decisions, but a God who is sovereignly working in all those decisions that we make. So we can be made more and more into his image and we can enjoy more and more of the beauty of the communion with that God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. Um, thank you for the patience of everyone here as we work through a really long section. Lord, I thank you that Paul takes time to just write out so many different scenarios that we can just wrestle with and consider and, and your spirit is working to grow us uh, in, in understanding how we can pursue the most wonderful thing in the world we could ever pursue and that's your presence, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you give us that wisdom as we're taught by the spirit. I thank you that at the same time you give us peace, you help us realize that as we wrestle with these things, there's nothing we can do that's gonna mess up your plan for us. There's nothing we can do that's gonna change how you view us. And there's nothing we can do that will change our worth in Christ. Lord, I pray that the, the gospel would be encouraging to us as we, as we seek to, to glimpse more of it, as we, as we strive day to day to see more of your beauty and be transformed by that. I thank you for this time to consider these things, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.